Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. is Mike Fader. Uh, our guest today is Astrid Caldas of the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, and we're going to talk about the current violent hurricane season and its relationship to uh, climate change and some other related questions. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, let me introduce you just briefly to the listeners, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Astrid Caldas is a senior climate scientist with uh, the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Her research focuses on climate change adaption with practical policy implications for ecosystems, the economy, and society. She also works on policy related to climate change, natural resources management, conservation planning, socio-environmental synthesis. What's that? 
that's when you use science, uh, you know, environmental science, and, and the, how it connects with society and what are the implications. Okay, and um, Dr. Caldas um, blogs regularly for the Huffington Post. So how, just, how did you wind up in this field of endeavor? I mean, is this something you always wanted to do since you were young? Uh, no, I always wanted to be a scientist. I have always wanted to do that, and I did become a scientist. I got my Ph.D. in ecology, and I worked, uh, interestingly, with bugs, insects, for most of my academic life, mm. uh, mainly butterflies. But uh, one at one time, about 15 years ago, all my experiments started getting um, crazy, and I realized it was because of climate change. Mm. So I started learning about climate change. I went back to school. I did a, you know, complete turn in my career, and I, I started uh, as a, with, working with climate science. And so, uh, after a while, you wind up at the uh, Union uh, for Concerned Scientists. Can can you tell me uh, something about Union for Concerned Scientists? What their mission is? How it's accomplished? You know. Sure. The Union of Concerned Scientists was created in the late 60s by a group of physicists from MIT up in Massachusetts. And uh, they were concerned about the use of nuclear power. Um, and, you know, the, at the time it was very important that, you know, nuclear power would be misused and, you know, energy issues and, and war issues and those things. So they created the Union of Concerned Scientists originally around um, nuclear issues, but then it grew to become a more environmental, uh, uh, comprehensively environmental. So today we have several programs, and they are all geared towards a safer and healthier environment. We have clean vehicles, we have food and environment, we have climate and energy, and uh, we also have a very strong um, science and, uh, and democracy, which we... Um, mm. We work a lot with scientific integrity, you know, because our mission is to put science out there. We are nonpartisan, and we want to put the best available science out there to anybody who wants to use it. And, and this uh, mission is not just uh, relegated to the uh, domestic United States. This is, I presume, this is for the entire world, right? Well, what we do has repercussions in the entire world. Our footprint specifically in the international uh, arena is mostly with the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, mm -hmm. those meetings that, you know, Paris Agreement, you know, that everybody has been hearing about a lot. We do have participation, and we've been having um, a part on those conversations for a long time, since the very beginning. That's our most uh, visible international uh, presence currently. We also had presence in uh, forests and deforestation issues and the use of forest products for um, the food industry. And, uh, and that, uh, that program has uh, it's been winding down a little more, but uh, those are my, our two main international presence. <clears throat> let, me, let me read you a little piece from, uh, I mean, a paragraph or two real quick from another piece that I was uh, reading the other day. It says, the United States just experienced its largest rainfall event in memory. Uh, for the first time in recorded weather history, two category, category four hurricanes, Harvey and Irma, hit in a single season, which, of course, is not yet over. And San Francisco, famed for its chilliness, experienced an unheard of 106-degree day as September began. 
while a record West Coast heat wave and wildfires left large parts of the region from Los Angeles to British Columbia wreathed in a pall of smoke and ash. Um, Are all these things related? Um, I would say yes, definitely. Um, Data shows us that... um, that these types of extreme events are more likely to happen now than they did before pre-industrial times. Mm-hmm. We have been uh, looking at these extreme events, like the Houston, you mentioned, extreme precipitation. The National Weather Service had to change the colors of their maps to actually depict the amount of rain properly because they didn't have colors for that amount of rain mm-hmm. measured in feet as opposed to inches. Um, the number and intensity, not the number, but the intensity of hurricanes and, uh, and the droughts and the wildfires, um, these are all uh, interconnected. And we do see, um, we do see uh, I don't, I don't want to say a fingerprint because we cannot attribute specifically any of these events to global warming until an attribution study is done. And I can talk a little more about that if you want. Yeah. But... We know that, uh, and the National Climate Assessment has told us that certain areas are going to be experiencing more drought. Uh, Extreme precipitation events have been increasing in the northeast in particular of the United States. Heavier downpours are increasing nationally in uh, the last three to five decades. But the amount of rain falling in these heaviest rain events is also increasing. So we are seeing all these things happening, and we know that the the hurricanes feed on warm oceans. That's one of their main main fuels, Mm -hmm. and we know that the ocean water is warmer, and we know that the atmosphere is warmer. So when these hurricanes are formed and they pass over these uh, warmer waters that have been warmer consistently for the past three decades, we know that it can, depending on other conditions, they can pick up speed and strength. So there, is, there are all these relations that we are seeing. And, of course, as you read in this piece, we can see that something is amiss. Something is not quite right. Mm-hmm. But well, I'm so also does this include things because I live in um, New York City here and does this include things like um these um uh, surges of water like in Hurricane Sandy uh the bottom mm-hmm. half of Manhattan was swamped in a way that I don't think it ever had been before. I mean does it include that but, too? It does include that too. As the research shows us that more carbon pollution more, from human activity the greenhouse gases in the warm in the atmosphere they cause the warmer temperatures, including ocean temperatures, as I mentioned. So this creates a threefold problem. As, as I just mentioned, there is greater energy uh, for, on the ocean for the likelihood of a storm becoming a Category 4 or 5. Mm. There is an increase in the amount of rain that these storms can bring because the whole warmer air can hold more water vapor, and there is more evaporation because the ocean is warmer. And also, because the ocean is warmer, it expands. So there is the issue of sea level rise. So with Sandy, we had the unfortunate event that it hit at high tide, and the angle where it hit was particularly damaging, but also because the sea level is higher right now, and it's going to keep going up for the foreseeable future unless we reduce emissions. Um, that, that, was, that was one of the main reasons, and, and this is one of the things that we are going to keep seeing, and that we saw in Florida with the storm surge. Hmm. 
You, you mentioned, uh, I, is it an attribution study before you want to say absolutely uh, there's a link, here's proof? Exactly. So um, the, the science of extreme event attribution is a science that ev- evaluates the contribution of multiple factors, hmm. causal factors to an event, so they can tell which, which factors caused an event. And when we include man-made global warming as one of these factors, we can evaluate what percentage of what, what fraction of the event was caused by this warming. So one example is the floods that happened in Baton Rouge last year in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, an attribution study was done for that particular extreme event, and it was shown that it was 30% more likely, made 30% more likely due to global warming. So for each event, it's a different situation because there are different factors. We know that hurricanes are much more complex to attribute than extreme precipitation, extreme rainfall events. And those are much harder than, for instance, uh, a heat wave or a cold wave because they have less factors contributing to them. So the science of attribution has been developing real well and real fast, but for each event, we need to have a specific study. We cannot say it is attributed to global warming until those studies are done. Well, with all this science and uh, these attribution studies, um, I mean, I'm convinced, and a lot of other people are convinced, I mean, I assume that the Union of Concerned Scientists, well, maybe I shouldn't. You say it's nonpartisan. Do you have, once you assemble all this uh, as close as you're ever going to get to proof of something or attribution that's clear, do you then have an arm or a branch that uh, tries to influence the federal or state governments to uh, to do something about it? We certainly do. We have a legislative uh, um you know, part of our work. And we do go to the Hill. We do brief uh, elected officials and their staff. We do tell them, uh, sometimes we initiate, sometimes they initiate the, the contact, you know, the interaction. And uh, we, come, we come armed with the science. And a lot of the times we come with the data, which is not projections or modeling into the future. Mm. We come with the data that shows, yes, sea level has been rising. Yes, we see that these hurricanes have been intensifying for the past three to five decades in the North Atlantic. We see and all this data. Data is something that it's hard to you know, go against because you are seeing the numbers in front of you. It's, it's, and, I'm sorry, uh, let, me, let me interrupt. <clears throat> it's hard for who to go against because, I mean, without getting, Anybody. Into, <laughs> without getting into personalities, it seems to me that there's a lot of people in positions of high authority at the moment or, you know, in various places in government who are either ignoring it or denying it, even though it's, well, it's proven, you know. Uh, well, a lot of things are proven, and a lot of things have been agreed upon. And what I always say is that, in addition to, in addition to uh, personal beliefs, mm. which is one of the main things that I say, uh, people want to belong to their group. They are, they be, want to be part of the people who think like them. So that's a, a big part of the thing happening when people say that they do not believe in climate uh, climate change well it shouldn't be a belief it's data mm. so when people kind of straddle that 
that line of belief and data, they put themselves in a situation where they can say that it's not true because it, it comes to belief, which it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. It should actually be science and data. So it's a very complex and a very delicate situation in which human nature plays a big role. But we, um, we at Union of Concerned Scientists do our best to bring those data to the people and show them that it's not a matter of belief, it is a matter of seeing the facts and planning according to these facts and taking them into consideration when you are making big decisions. Well, that makes perfect sense. It's a completely logical. Uh, I hope it's, it is paid attention to. I mean, we all do. What is the significance, uh, briefly, of course, of the United States or, you know, uh, currently, you know, the administration of the United States withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord or intending to? Well, the United States has always been a big leader, right? But there was a lot of hold back on agreements because the United States was not completely in. They didn't want to go. The other countries didn't want to go in if the United States were not in because we are big, a big emitter of these greenhouse gases. So when the administration signals its intention, intention to um, withdraw from the Paris Agreement, it sends a message of, well, if they are, don't think it's important, why should we think it's important? Mm-hmm. That's, that would be the message. But on the other hand, we are seeing that the other countries are not reading it as that. And, and they are actually upping their game, many of them. We are hearing from countries that are saying they're going to continue with their pledges. They're going to continue with their dedication. And uh, the other aspect is... The federal government, what they say, has a big impact in the international arena, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But within the United States, we know that states and cities are already doing a huge amount uh, right. of, yes, of, of work towards changing the, the, their emissions and reducing their emissions and changing to renewables. So we know that independently of what the federal government says it will do, we are and we may see a significant reduction in emissions due to the bottom-up actions, as we call it. Um, this, this phrase, the tipping point, I don't know where it originated, but it's been around for a while right now. Um, can you explain what the tipping point is, how close we are to it? I mean, is it even possible, I mean, I hate to say this, but uh, that we're on the verge of passing it? Yeah, well, just uh, just this week a study came out saying that um, the possibility of staying under 1.5 degrees went from impossible to maybe. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, so things are always changing, and, and that's the nature of science, and that's the good nature of science, because different studies come up, and they test the previous one, so, you know, we know that when something says something is, is, is happening, and other people are going to test it and check it. So there are different methods of estimating future warming, and um, relating to the tipping point, what we know is that if, if, if emissions, because of the time that they stay in the atmosphere, 
all the calculations are done to see when there is a point where we can, when it's the limit where we can go so that we don't go beyond that two degrees. Mm -hmm. That was the Paris Agreement. So a a tipping point, I I actually wrote a blog about that on the Huffington Post, you mentioned that a while ago. Mm -hmm. A tipping point is the point of, of no return. So once you reach that point, you, cannot, you, you can't go back. So you can't go back to what it was before, and you can't reverse a lot of the processes that are going to be put in place. In the case of uh, global warming, uh, 1.5 and 2 degrees um, uh, centigrades are going to affect many ecosystems, many systems, many interactions that we depend upon on the surface. So it's not just the temperature itself. It's going to affect pollinators. It's going to affect distribution of crops. It's going to affect uh, forests and all the ecosystem that, you know, is is related to those forests. In in other words, everything that sustains human life on Earth, right? Oh, pretty much, because we depend on all these systems working, if not in structure, which has changed over the years, but in function. So we need to preserve the system's functions that we depend upon, even if the structure of the, 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 the players change. So, for instance, we have the wetlands that are huge defense against flooding, right? Mm-hmm. They act as sponges. They also act as uh, filters for pollution, for everything that comes from the land into the waters. If they are removed, what can be there to take their place? So something else has to be there, and as of now, we are not seeing anything coming into that place, and that's why we're seeing all these floods, because there is no other player that is playing that role. I I read an article in the New York Times the other day, um, just recently, actually, a couple of days ago, that said that despite all the trouble that they just recently had in Florida and they continue to have over the years, uh, a, a huge building boom that's been going on there, including in the wetlands, is continuing. So I don't know. I mean, you're not just talking about educating government. I guess you're talking, you have to talk about educating uh, average uh, people everywhere. I mean, you know, people are moving to Florida and building these giant buildings right on the coast. Well, and, and uh, people want to develop. People want to make money. And uh, actually, the uh, association of, uh, I, don't, I don't remember, the Home, Home Builders Association or something, mm-hmm. um, it's a name like that. I don't know the exact name. But they were actually um, happy when the administration moved back with the executive order, moved back the federal flood uh, risk management standards, which would uh, prevent any federal-funded structures built on the floodplains up to a certain point to be better prepared to withstand floods. I mean, this is just common sense. But the home builders thought that it was just red tape or, you know, it was going to prevent development. And so there are all these interests that are playing against what we know would be better for the environment and to prevent these huge floods. Houston was another example. They have been building over and paving over wetlands for a long time. Hmm. So that water had nowhere to go. Uh, you can only hope people generally, in general, learn a lesson, but the prognosis for me doesn't really look too good. But, I mean, on the other hand, uh, you have to hope for the best, right? I mean, what 
let me ask you a question. All this, um, uh, you've been listening, by the way, to Astrid, uh, you have been listening and still are listening to Astrid Caldas, who's a senior climate scientist with the uh, Climate and Energy Program at the Union for Concerned Scientists. We only have a couple of minutes left. All this, stuff, these, these incredible destructive forces of nature, I don't even know if they've given it a, a, a kind of anthropomorphized things. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just being what it's being. And all these uh, tremendous storms, and uh, then you have all the imperial powers of the federal government, which don't seem to be able to be contradicted by an average citizen. Uh, I think it engenders a feeling of helplessness in a lot of average citizens. So what can an average citizen do? Well... Ultimately, elected officials want to be elected. That is their, you know, their job. That's what they do. So if their constituents start clamoring for solutions, start asking for changes in policies and protections and common sense measures that will protect their life and property, particularly in light of these extreme events, I think we can see a, 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 a change starting. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that to happen, that's what we do here. We go out to these communities, we work with them to educate them and to tell them, hey, this is what's happening because of X, Y, and Z. And if this changes, then you can have a better life and you're not going to see the flood, you're not going to see the fires much. So you should talk to your elected officials. And we do see some results and it, it has to be broader. It has to be more widely spread across the country. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, for coming on and explaining these things, and um, I really appreciate it. Really appreciate. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. Thank you. Thank you again. Uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, and you can always find out what they're doing and how to help them by going to their website, Union of Concerned Scientists. Okay, this is Mike Fader, and uh, we're going to have another guest coming up in just a little bit um, who is going to discuss some of the uh, military effects, the military effects over the entire world and here at home of climate change. Stay tuned. This is Mike Fader, and this show is called The Turning Point. 
Um, we have uh, another guest with us today, and we're going to discuss a recent piece that he wrote uh, on Tom Dispatch, a great website. And it's called Beyond Harvey and Irma, Militarizing Homeland Security in the Climate Change Era. And our guest is Michael Clare. Thank you for coming on. Sure thing. Let me introduce you briefly to people, and then we can talk about the uh, article you just wrote. Um, Michael Clare is a professor of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College and the author of 14 books, including most recently, The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. And he is currently completing a work on a new book, All Hell Breaking Loose on Climate Change and American National Security. So um, this piece you wrote, uh, can you describe what uh, the military forces are that were and are being dispatched to uh, storm-hit areas, including Florida, State National Guard, et cetera? I mean, what is the nature of this? What is going on here initially? Well, think of a small war. What would you mobilize in a small war? That, that's that's kind of what the military has mobilized. In, in the case of Irma and now Maria, uh, we have to add that to the list, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We have an aircraft carrier, the Abraham Lincoln, plus half a dozen major combat vessels, the Iwo Jima, the New York, the Kearsarge, and several others, uh, plus hundreds of helicopters and other planes, thousands and thousands of active duty and National Guard troops, all kinds of all-terrain vehicles. I mean, we're talking about a massive mobilization of American military power are being deployed to to serve in emergency rescue operations, delivering food, restoring power, and all of these kinds of activities. Now, uh, the fact that this is happening is not, uh, the fact of it is not a new thing, right? But uh, I guess what you're saying is, is the extent of it, right? Well, uh, what uh, the military, the U.S. military has always historically provided assistance to civil authorities in the case of natural disasters. That's part of this, the thing they do. And the National Guard, that's part of their activities. What I argue and what the military itself is saying is that in light of climate change, these kind of activities are going to occur more and more frequently and take up more and more of their time and resources mm-hmm. so that this represents a, will represent a change in the strategic orientation of the U.S. military that nobody has really thought about or planned for. At the same time as their commander-in-chief, Donald Trump, says that climate change doesn't exist. So you have a a disconnection between reality and the work of the military and and the highest echelon in Washington. Um, So um, you mentioned in your article that the, the military has been studying this in detail. There have been many strategic studies. Maybe you could mention a couple of them and explain what these studies were over the last, let's say, I don't know, the last 10, 15 decades. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, well, you know, the the military is a very, the U.S. military is a logical organization. They they look ahead. That's part of what they do to to 
consider what are the threats to U.S. national security. And, you know, they tend to focus on, on the more typical hard core kind of threats, nuclear threats from Russia and China, terrorism, and, and the usual things you would imagine. But increasingly, they're coming to view climate change as a threat to U.S. national security in multiple ways. They see climate change as creating chaos in Africa and in Latin America and Asia by uh, by uh, drying up resources, by creating increased levels of conflict between different ethnic groups, by stirring up terrorism, I could go on. Uh, but it's, they also see well, that, that, I'm climate sorry, that, that... change as producing more threats to the homeland, mm-hmm. rising seas, uh, pr- profound heat waves that are creating fires all over the American West, and other threats that are going to cause hardship at home and that will require a deployment of American forces. So uh, the, uh, the, uh, inclu- what includes uh, in the world situation that the United States, uh, well, you know, the, the subject of the United States um, interesting itself or uh, being aggressive militarily in so many parts of the world is almost like a separate uh, discussion. But, of course, what you're saying is that uh, we're going to have to reassess, or the federal government's going to have to reassess what it does with its forces if there are more of them required at home. But I guess this includes in the world the whole idea of um, refugees coming to the United States, right? And the other parts, other parts uh, of Europe, too. Yeah, absolutely. If you read the long-range analysis that the Department of Defense and the intelligence community is producing, they see this as a major threat to global stability. They think that climate change will produce vast hordes of refugees coming to Europe, like you say, Mike, to the United States, creating conflict wherever this occurs because people don't want these vast numbers of refugees in many cases and we know that we've seen that mm-hmm. um, and uh, this is going to feed uh, uh, extremism in many parts of the world and and create more work more jobs for the military uh, and uh, you know I I, I, I know that some People think that the military is eager to go out and fight, but I, I don't think that's an accurate picture. I think they dread this world of climate change where gl- global chaos will be the norm. Um, the, um, you mentioned earlier the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln. Uh, mm-hmm. wasn't, that, wasn't that the uh, aircraft carrier that um, our, our, one of our earliest versions of a fearless leader landed and said the mission was accomplished? That's, that's where George Bush landed uh, his plane when, when he, 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 after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and, and Saddam Hussein was overthrown, and, and, and he said, mission accomplished, mm. uh, just, just before the uprising, the Sunni uprising, that essentially has not come to an end since then. Well, we are involved in all these endless wars. I mean, look at Afghanistan. Every time you see that, you, you get a feeling like it's Groundhog Day. You know, didn't I already have this nightmare? And now there's more yes. troops. Yes. And, you know, Mike, and I, I've been watching the Ken Burns series on Vietnam. Oh, I, I haven't I seen hope... that, yeah. Oh, 
everybody should be watching that for this very reason, because uh, it, 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 we're seeing this deja vu all over again. Mm-hmm. You American leaders saying back then, you know, that we have to go in, we have to stop this, and just a few more troops. We'll send in a few more troops, and we'll solve this. Oh, that's not enough. We need another 10,000. And that's exactly what's happening in Afghanistan today. These surges have been tried before. I mean, not to mention the fact that nobody seems to be aware of history at all. I mean, first we had the British, then we had the Russians. Uh, I guess we're, we're, we're more powerful. We have magic that they didn't have, right? Well, that, that, that was exactly the lesson of the Ken Burns series. And I plead with everybody to see that, to, for this reason, to be reminded the arrogance of of U.S. leaders McNamara and the others, and in the Ken Burns movie, you you see them meeting and talking uh, in exactly this way that we're going to prevail, we're going to defeat the Vietnamese. Utter contempt mm-hmm. of the fighting capacity of the Vietnamese to to resist, and it's the same thing in Afghanistan. Well, let's uh, let's go back, wander a little bit back to. I mean, all these things are related, but wander back to the theme a little bit. That what was the original? Yes. What was the original? Talk about uh, a new a new face of homeland security, a new face of the yes. war. What was the original mission of homeland security uh, and FEMA and the Coast Guard, et cetera, et cetera? And and how has the focus changed under the Trump administration? Uh, well, now. Uh FEMA and the Coast Guard, these are organizations that have a long history that predated the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, DHS. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security was created in the aftermath of 9-11. After 9-11, there was this hysteria in the United States, huge uproar. We have to do more to protect the homeland. And this is the the Bush administration that we were talking about a few minutes ago. And Congress created the DHS to to uh, bring all these or, or these previously existing organizations together, but but basically to bolster the nation's defenses against the possibility of another 9/11. Mm-hmm. So the DHS, their primary role is to prevent 9-11 from happening all over again, to prevent uh, Islamic terrorists from al-Qaeda to launch an attack on the U.S. homeland. And and most of their resources are devoted to that. Uh, Now, under Donald Trump, the, the bigger focus has been not so much on Islamic terrorism, but on Latin American, Hispanic, immigrants trying to come into the United States because mm-hmm. that was his that was his campaign theme mm-hmm. to keep those people out and we all know what he meant by that he was very explicit about his racist talk about Hispanics so the theme never was about climate change even though elements of DHS like FEMA and the Coast Guard especially, are seeing with their own eyes the impact of climate change on, on American security, on the rising seas, on the heat waves that are devastating the American West, 
uh, where where you have vast areas that are in flames, and where the National Guard are have been mobilized in California and Montana and other states to f- fight forest fires that are driven by climate change. So these are clear to those organizations that have to deal with them, but they're not part of the prevailing mission of Homeland Security as seen by the president. As seen by the president, who is, is, uh, as far as the environment and climate change, has... um He's purging federal government references to climate change, laying off scientists, um, uh, appointing the heads of various agencies who either say they don't believe in it or want to eliminate people or the government's rules. Sure. Uh, And and moreover, he he wants to cut the budget of the Coast Guard, which is insanity, because the Coast Coast Guard, in the case of Hurricane Harvey and Irma, and 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 now Maria, uh, they're the front line defenders. They're the people who 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 rescue people from boats and uh, and shore facilities. And they're with rising sea levels. They're they're and more storms. We're going to need a bigger coast guard, not a smaller coast guard. <clears throat> but you're saying that the Department of Defense, the people who are on the front lines, as you just mentioned, the Coast Guard, people in FEMA, and the people who are in these military units that you enumerated before, uh, they're very well aware with their own eyes what's going on. I mean, they are literally in the front lines of this sort of new kind of war here. Um, yes. And, but, and the Department of Defense is very much aware of it, too. So we've got this strange um, disconnect here between the upper levels politically, if you will, of the federal government and the vast uh, departments underneath them that are actually doing exactly the opposite and planning for the opposite, correct? That is exactly correct. Uh, uh, Even as as high as the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, has testified that climate change is a threat to our security and that the U.S. military, the armed forces, have to be prepared to address this danger. But at the White House, that's forbidden language. Hmm. Uh, you might, obviously, you're aware of the fact that, and I think you mentioned it also in your, in your piece, uh, and if you just tuned in, my guest is Michael Clare, who, who is a professor of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College, who has written a recent uh, piece on Tom Dispatch about... Uh, the shifting uh, focus of the U.S. military when it comes to uh, climate change uh, and its effects here in the United States and perhaps elsewhere. You must be aware, of course, of the, um, of the uh, large number of really horrible accidents involving the U.S. Navy recently, right, in the last several months, last yes, year. Yes, of course. There have been, there've been four major incidents. And, um, um, you know, I, I was reading an article the other day about how uh, typically people are working 100-hour weeks and they're worn out. Uh, they get four hours of sleep a night for, uh, or none for, you know, nights on end. And uh, they just aren't able to maintain uh, safety in their various operations. Um, is this re- related in any way, do you think? Uh, I mean, this has happened over, over you know, centuries, but is this related in any way to the fact that, the, that the, there's a, um, a shifting or a stretching thin of forces? Uh, what you're describing, I think, is a product of 
something else that's going on. It, it's related, I suppose, but um, uh, this is related, I think, to another aspect of Trumpism, which is the get tough attitude, show them who's boss, we're not going to be pushed around, uh, we're, we're, we're going to, we're, we're, we're now, you know, muscle, the muscle flexing element of Trumpism, mm-hmm. in, especially in Asia, because all of these accidents have occurred in the Pacific theater. Uh, and, and it's where not only are we contesting, is the United States contesting North Korea, but also trying to show the Chinese who's boss in the East China Sea, in the South China Sea, in the Indian Ocean. And the way you do that is you put your ships out to sea as much as possible. Uh, a, a lot of this is in the contested South China Sea area where, where the Chinese have built some bases on these islands, these contested islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, the U.S. has responded by uh, aggressive naval patrolling in the region. And then also the so, naval patrolling between Japan and Korea, right? Right. Uh, so all of the, and, you know, and, and continually uh, aggressive patrols off the coast of North Korea. So when you're doing all of this simultaneously without having additional forces at hand, what that means is everybody's working double time or triple time. Well, uh, one of the obvious uh, <clears throat> uh, choices, you mentioned the word choice, one of the obvious choices involved here is either find more, even yet more money for the Defense Department and build more ships and have more forces uh, in the air and on the ground all over the country, all over the world to enforce this sort of uh, new get tough, aggressive attitude. Um, and or maybe to reflect what the Chinese and especially what the Russians are doing. I mean, either you, you go all in on this and just, uh, you know, expand the military uh, tremendously, or you have to retreat, withdraw. I mean, there is such a thing uh, in the world as we retreating and withdrawing for strategic purposes. If we need these, these military forces at home to help us domestically and, you know, uh, we just can't afford to do both, either our, let, let our country blow up or burn up, I should say, and uh, drown, or um, you know, just go off and uh, make sure that China and Russia and Korea stay in their place. You know, this is a choice, right? Yes, yes. Eventually, you have to make a choice. Uh, right now, uh, what's happened is this has fallen on the uh, men and women of the U.S. military who are working much harder uh, than is humanly possible. Uh, that's how you fill in the, the gaps, up, but you can't do that forever. So you're absolutely right, Mike. At some point, you have to make a strategic choice. And, and the military, understand, that is the leadership, understands this perfectly, that climate change is going to, is, is going to have a severe impact on their lives and on, on, the, on the future picture of the world's environment. And therefore, and, that, that, and the conclusion from this is that climate, the, the, to, to defend our, to protect ourselves from the invasions of climate change, you have to address climate change. Mm-hmm. This is a matter of national security. If you want to protect the American coastlines 
and American forests and American farmlands from destruction, you have to address climate change and slow it down. This is a matter of national security. They understand this. So there is an utter contradiction between a realistic national security posture and the insane policies of the commander-in-chief. Well, there have been uh, there have been um, gaps like this before, but I've never seen one like it. I mean, they, they, they seem to be living in some kind of fairy tale adjusted to the fact, of course, that they need to please whoever they imagine their base is. And this lack of education generally in the country that, that, that leads people to vote for these Republican uh, congressmen, congresspeople, and, uh, and senators, and then ultimately for people like Trump. Meanwhile, we have our military who, like you say, they have a job to do and they see clearly what they need to do. They are proceeding full speed ahead to do what's right and to do what they need to do. Um, and meanwhile, on top... It's fairy tale land. It's a very strange situation, um, and I wonder how it's going to adjust itself. Yeah, uh, it, it, this is why I, I, I think if you if you pose this as a matter of national security, not a matter of debate, mm-hmm. that, that is not as an ideological matter. Uh, the military doesn't take a stand on you know all the politics of climate change. They see it as as a threat to our country. And if you view it that way, uh, this is not a Democratic or a Republican issue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 that, that's what I hope people can come to grasp, uh, because the people who voted for Donald Trump are the ones who are going to suffer from all of this. And are suffering at the moment. And are suffering. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, uh, we can only hope that people really do see what's happening. I mean, I guess uh, when you write a piece like this and when you write uh, a book like you're writing, then you hope as many people uh, read this as possible. Um, And then maybe one hopes that during the midterm elections, uh, there will be people who are more aware of these things elected. So... um, You've been listening to Michael Clare, who's a professor of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College, and um, his uh, recent, most recent book is The Race for What's Left, global, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources, and he's currently working on a new book, All Hell Breaking Loose, on climate change and American national security. Thanks so much for coming on and explaining this uh, odd, uh, you know, odd disconnect that's going on and what's being done about it. Thank you. Sure thing. Bye bye. Okay, Michael Clare, and uh, you can uh, read his uh, latest piece about these things um, on Tom Dispatch, T O M D I S P A T C H, tomdispatch.com. And if you go on there, you'll be able to see the full piece that he wrote. Yeah, I mean, uh, here's the military. Um, do they really want to go all over the world, uh, stretching themselves thin, uh, involved in a, in a hundred different wars everywhere? Or maybe would they prefer, since they are Americans, to be home, uh, you know, dealing with what the effects of climate change are increasingly doing to this country? I mean, it is a war. It is a war that we've brought on ourselves. So uh, we have to deal with the consequences of it. But we don't have the... Uh, the, uh, the forces, and we don't have the numbers, and we don't have the money to do both. I mean, is it not a bad thing, right, to withdraw from the world, from a lot of places in the world? We're going to have to. America cannot dominate everything, and we need to retreat and take care of charity begins at home. 
All right, that's it for this week. Uh, This is Mike Fader, and I will see you next week. Well, it's all. Someone to tell you everything Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring Maybe a diamond ring Well, it's all right Even if they say you're wrong Well, it's all right Sometimes you gotta be strong Well, it's all right As long as you got someone to lay Somewhere down the road when somebody plays If you're by my side